Welcome to the AAP Board Review Podcast, which is a podcast reviewing high-yield, board-relevant topics in the field of physiatry. I'm Dr. Katome Obayashi, a PMNR resident at the University of Missouri. And I'm Dr. Benjamin Gill, also a PMNR resident at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. We want this podcast to be a high-yield, audible study aid. In today's episode, our focus will be on dysphagia and aphasia. Special thanks to speech therapists Ann Stoll and Sadie Gast for their feedback. We appreciate your multidisciplinary collaboration. Thanks to Dr. Claire Finkel and Dr. Joseph Burris from the University of Missouri for reviewing this episode. Disclaimer, the AAP board review series is for educational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be used to diagnose, prevent, or treat any diseases or conditions. The views expressed are solely those of the host and do not represent the official views or policy of any entity. Content for this series is based off current PM&R learning materials and is created by residents for residents. It is not an official board review study guide. All right, Katomi, let's get started with our first case. A 72-year-old male with history of Parkinson's disease presents to the clinic. His spouse is worried that he is losing weight and having difficulty with eating and drinking. You ask a speech therapist to perform a bedside swallow study and the patient coughs multiple times with a small amount of water. Afterward, he is noted to have a wet and gurgly voice. What is the next best step in management of this patient? So this patient has dysphagia. He coughs and has a wet voice after trialing oral intake on a bedside swallow test. So to better evaluate his dysphagia, a modified barium swallow or a fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing tests should be performed. Can you describe each of these tests? Of course. A modified barium swallow radiographically visualizes the anatomy of swallowing and uses various consistencies of food and liquid mixed with barium. The test evaluates oral, pharyngeal, and cervical esophageal phases. A fiber optic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, also known as a FEES, is a direct visualization of the laryngeal and pharyngeal structures with a camera and uses various consistencies of food and liquid mixed with food dye. Both tests can assess for residue, which is material remaining in the mouth or pharynx after a swallow, penetration, which occurs when material enters the larynx but remains above the vocal folds, and aspiration, which occurs when material passes inferior to the level of the vocal folds. Although there is much debate regarding which test is preferred, the MBS was often cited as the gold standard. Overall, choice of tests should be based on clinical judgment and patient presentation. Can you briefly discuss the phases of swallowing? Sure. The four phases of swallowing are the oral preparatory phase, the oral phase, pharyngeal phase, and esophageal phase. The oral preparatory phase is voluntary and prepares the bolus of food. It depends on several muscular contractions, including tension in the labial and buccal musculature, rotary jaw movement, and lateral tongue movement to grind food into smaller pieces. The oral phase is also voluntary and involves tongue elevation, which includes the anterior oral cavity and propels the food bolus towards the oropharynx. The pharyngeal phase is largely reflexive and involves the bolus being propelled from the mouth to the esophagus. The soft palate elevates and the laryngeal vestibule closes off the airway, and breathing is inhibited to prevent aspiration. The esophageal phase is also reflexive and involves passage of the bolus from the pharynx through the esophagus to the stomach. What are some common causes for impairment in each phase, and how would the dysphagia present clinically? So, the oral preparatory and oral phases can be impaired following damage to muscles themselves, or the nerves innervating the tongue, muscles of mastication, or soft palate. These cranial nerves are cranial nerve 12, hypoglossal, 
cranial nerve 5, trigeminal, and cranial nerve 10, vagus, which could be impaired following a brainstem stroke, tumor, or trauma. Other disorders that could affect these muscles include TMJ or myositis. Clinically, dysphagia during these phases can present as drooling or pocketing. The pharyngeal phase may be impaired following damage to the muscles themselves or nerves innervating the soft palate, larynx, true vocal folds, and pharynx. These cranial nerves include cranial nerve 10, cranial nerve 7, or facial nerve, and cranial nerve 12. Clinically, dysphagia during this phase can present as choking and coughing, aspiration, and a wet or gurgly voice. The esophageal phase can be impaired following damage to the cricopharyngeal muscle and lower esophageal sphincter. Clinically, dysphagia during this phase can present as heartburn and a sensation of food sticking in the passageway. What phase is likely affected in our patient? So, the patient in our case was experiencing coughing and a wet, gurgly voice, which is most likely to be seen in the pharyngeal phase. It is important to know that aspiration is most likely to occur during the pharyngeal phase because it relies on intact laryngeal protective mechanisms to prevent the passage of substances through the vocal folds. Thank you, Katomi, for breaking down the phases of swallowing and how each can be affected by dysphagia. We should certainly remember that disordered swallowing may result after specific insults to the phases of swallowing and generally in a patient with impaired cognition and attention. What would be some of the complications of dysphagia? Dysphagia can create a whole host of complications for the patient. The inability to get food into the stomach can lead to diminishing oral intake and subsequent malnutrition and dehydration. Alternative feeding methods include an NG tube or nasogastric tube, PEG tube, and parenteral nutrition. In the acute setting, a nasogastric tube can be placed for nutrition. Although there are no exact guidelines regarding PEG tube placement, it should be considered if the patient is suspected to need an alternative feeding method after about two to three weeks. Parenteral nutrition can be considered as a second-line option if the patient does not have a functional GI tract. However, the risks include infection and metabolic imbalances. That is important to consider. Patients need a route of nutrition. Exactly. Dysphagia can be very frustrating. This may lead to depression in the patient, which certainly impairs rehab and recovery. The most immediate life-threatening complication of dysphagia is aspiration. The concern with aspiration and passage of substances through the vocal folds into the trachea is subsequent aspiration pneumonia, which can be rapidly fatal. Although a bedside swallow is a useful screening measure, aspiration is missed in about 40-60% to 60 of patients, which is likely related to silent aspiration. This is one of the reasons why instrumental assessments are so important. Patients and their families must be educated on the risk as diet modifications, positioning, alternative feeding routes, and other interventions are used to reduce the risk of death. Oral hygiene must also be considered as there is higher risk of life-threatening infection with large oral bacterial loads. How can we prevent aspiration? Strategies to prevent aspiration include sitting the patient up at with meals, remaining upright for at least 30 minutes following meals, performing oral care, and identifying the least restrictive diet for the patient following an instrumented assessment. A speech therapist can help teach the patient compensatory strategies like the chin tuck or head rotation. These strategies alter the path of the bolus and may eliminate aspiration. Enteral feeding can help provide adequate nutrition to a patient with dysphagia, but has not been shown to reduce aspiration pneumonia. Thank you for that thorough review of dysphagia. It is so important that we evaluate patients with suspected dysphagia early to properly diagnose the deficit, prevent complications, and provide adequate nutrition. 
Let's jump into another case. Sounds great. An 85-year-old female with history of poorly controlled hypertension and type 2 diabetes mellitus presents to the emergency department via EMS after her family noticed that she had right-sided facial droop and was slurring her words. She is given TPA after a non-contrast head CT reveals no signs of hemorrhage. She is then admitted to the neurosurgical ICU for further monitoring. Upon exam, you notice that the patient's speech is non-fluent with loss of normal grammatical structure. When you ask the patient to repeat the phrase, no ifs, ands, or buts, she is unable to do so. Her comprehension is intact, and she seems frustrated about her inability to communicate. How would you classify this patient's language deficit? This patient has aphasia, which is the impairment of the ability to use language. The most common cause of aphasia is stroke. There are several types of aphasia which result from various insults to the language-dominant hemisphere of the brain. This is the left hemisphere in most of the population, including in patients who are left-hand dominant. Aphasia can be further classified based on fluency, comprehension, and repetition. This patient is non-fluent, able to comprehend, and unable to repeat, which is indicative of Broca's aphasia. An easy way to remember Broca's aphasia is the saying, broken boca, which is Spanish for mouth. That is correct. Where is Broca's area located in the brain? Broca's area is the posterior inferior frontal lobe of the dominant hemisphere, anterior to the motor cortex areas that supply the lips, tongue, and larynx. Thank you for breaking down Broca's aphasia. Let's now go through some quick cases to further test our knowledge on aphasias. Sounds great, Kitomi. A patient demonstrates fluent speech, but is unable to comprehend or repeat. What kind of aphasia is this? This sounds like Wernicke's aphasia. Wernicke's area is in the posterior part of the superior temporal gyrus. An easy way to remember this aphasia is the saying, Wernicke is wordy, but doesn't make any sense. Great. How would you classify this aphasia? A patient that has non-fluent speech, but can comprehend and repeat. This patient likely has transcortical motor aphasia, which occurs after an insult to the brain near Broca's area. How is this different from transcortical sensory aphasia? So in transcortical sensory aphasia, repetition is intact and the patient is fluent, but the patient is unable to comprehend. Fantastic. How about a patient is non-fluent, unable to comprehend, and cannot repeat? So this sounds like global aphasia. This typically involves a large lesion to the left MCA in which most or all of the language centers are affected. For review, let's go over the types of aphasias again. So when thinking about aphasia, break it down based on fluency, comprehension, and repetition. I would suggest creating a diagram to help make this easier. If the patient is fluent, they likely have either Wernicke's, transcortical sensory, conduction, or anomia aphasia. Conduction aphasia involves the arcuate fasciculus and is characterized by fluency and comprehension with inability to repeat. Anomia is word-finding difficulty, but fluency, comprehension, and repetition are intact. The difference between Wernicke's and transcortical sensory aphasia is the inability to repeat in Wernicke's, but ability to repeat in transcortical sensory. That's a great way to break down fluent aphasias. How about non-fluent aphasia? So non-fluent aphasias include Broca's, transcortical motor, global, and mixed transcortical. Mixed transcortical aphasia involves the border zone of the frontal, 
parietal, and temporal areas and is characterized by non-fluency, poor comprehension, and preserved repetition. The difference between Broca's aphasia and transcortical motor is the inability to repeat in Broca's but ability to repeat in transcortical motor. Transcortical aphasias in general are characterized by the ability to repeat. Let's talk about other disorders of speech that may be present in a patient with aphasia. That's a great idea. So first, paraphasia refers to incorrect substitution of words or parts of words, which may be phonomic or semantic. Substitution of the word mouse for house would be an example of phonomic paraphasia. Agrammatism refers to absent grammatical structures in a sentence. Echolalia is just repetition of words of another person. Circumlocution refers to speech that circles around a specific idea that cannot be recalled. It is often seen with anomia. Neologism refers to a made-up word that only has meaning to the speaker. And jargon is well-articulated speech, but is mostly unintelligible. And this is often seen in Wernicke's aphasia. Thank you for discussing some of the other errors of speech. I know those are difficult to remember and recall all the time with patients. Let's move on to cover a few other disorders of language that we haven't talked about yet. These are apraxia of speech and dysarthria. Can you tell me about apraxia of speech? Sure. Apraxia of speech is a disorder that affects pathways in the brain that are involved in planning the movements necessary to produce speech. This area of the brain is in the left hemisphere for most people. The person knows what they want to say, but the speech is effortful with articulation errors. It is important to know that apraxia of speech is not caused by dysfunction of the muscles of speech. What about dysarthria? Dysarthria, on the other hand, is an impairment in the muscles of speech. There are several types of dysarthria, including spastic, hyperkinetic, hypokinetic, ataxic, and flaccid, which can affect speech production in various ways. Great work. Before we wrap up, what are your key takeaways from today's episode? First, aspiration most commonly occurs during the pharyngeal phase of swallowing. Coughing, choking, food sticking, and a wet voice should make you suspicious that a patient has a dysfunction of the pharyngeal phase of swallowing. Second, the modified barium swallow was often cited as the gold standard for evaluation and treatment of dysphagia. However, many studies comparing MBS to fees found similar sensitivity and specificities for the diagnosis of dysphagia and aspiration. Overall, the decision to use either test should be based on many factors, including clinical judgment and patient presentation. Third, patients can use several compensatory strategies to prevent aspiration. The chin tuck prevents entry of liquid into the larynx. Head rotation closes the ipsilateral pharynx and forces the bolus into the contralateral side. The patient is instructed to turn their head to the paretic side during this maneuver. Lastly, break down aphasians based on fluency, comprehension, and repetition. Creating a diagram can help with this. Non-fluent aphasias include Broca's, transcortical motor, global, and mixed transcortical. Fluent aphasias include Wernicke's, transcortical sensory, conduction, or anomia aphasia. The difference between Wernicke's and transcortical sensory aphasia is inability to repeat in Wernicke's, but ability to repeat in transcortical sensory. The difference between Broca's aphasia and transcortical motor is the inability to repeat in Broca's, but ability to repeat in transcortical motor. Great work, Katomi. I think I'm ready for a snack. I couldn't agree with you more. Great talking with you.
We hope you enjoyed this board review episode on aphasia and dysphagia. Thanks again to speech therapist Ann Stoll, Sadie Gast, and Dr. Joseph Burris and Dr. Claire Finkel at the University of Missouri for reviewing this episode. If you thought this podcast was helpful, please share with others who may also value the content. Don't forget to follow the AAP on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to stay up to date on the latest news and opportunities. 